So in case I go off on a tangent, let's let's ground ourselves here in the in where we're at in our Sunday mornings, um, third or fourth Sunday that we've um, we've been looking through this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We're going to read the first ten verses of chapter two this morning, and um, and hopefully we will hopefully we'll make it as far as that. There is lots of gold in these few verses. Um, so just so you know, by way of introduction, just conscious that there's uh, not everybody's been part of this over the last number of weeks. Um, but we, uh, we're convinced that this, this letter that Paul wrote is reveals the the mystery, the hidden foundation um, of the church that gives us the grounding to stand on. See, so Paul's not, this is one of the only letters that Paul is not addressing a particular error in belief or error in behavior. He is presenting what it truly looks like to be caught up in the, in the story of God, what it truly looks like to be part of of the church, the mystery, the hidden foundation um, that was revealed to Paul and is also entrusted to us. And this is, this is the grounding that we are wanting to stand on over these weeks. And what we will continue to talk about essentially is a conversation in maturing and growing up in Christ, growing in Christ, deepening our roots, becoming mature, measuring to the full stature of Jesus Christ, as Paul says later on in this letter. We've mentioned briefly that it's, it's perfectly divided into two, this letter. And the first three chapters remind us, remind us of the gospel story, remind us of the story of grace, reminds us of what Jesus has done and what it now means for us to be in him to be part of the church. And so the first three chapters of the gospel story and the, the chapters four, five, and six are our, our story or our response or how we are now going to live in light of, in light of this. Let's read these verses. Um, reading from the NIV, I think that will be the same that will be behind me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And honestly, I would encourage you to, at some stage during the day, find a quiet place, find a quiet spot in your bedroom, or wherever it is, and just meditate upon these verses. Sometimes there are verses that, uh, that, we've, that we've learned at Sunday school, or good memory verses that will maybe have stuck to our fridges or whatever. But it is worth meditating upon these. It's worth really absorbing what um, Paul is communicating here. On Wednesday night, we, uh, we looked at chapter 3 in Rick's book, and, uh, and the conversation, once again, was incredibly rich. It's incredibly life-giving. And I know Rick's book's great, but for me, it's the, it's the conversation that's stirred as we work out together what, what the Lord is saying to us. And, um, and so chapter 3 of the book, um, you'll all know this because you're all reading it, and you've all read it, chapter 3, am I right? Um, committing to community was this was the chapter talking about what it is to be part of the church. And this is what I think Paul is getting at here. He's, 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 calling, us to, he's calling us to give ourselves. He's calling us to, to get an understanding, a revelation of what it means to be part of the family of God, to be part of this mystery, hidden mystery of the, of the church, which was entrusted to Paul by revelation. I suppose I've just tried to engage with the first few verses and, and thinking, of, thinking of where we've already been, thinking of even what we started off our year with and what it looks like to walk humbly with our God. Sometimes in how we, how we think about others, how we speak of one another. I found myself considering that as I went back into these first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2. I was, um, as I was reading Rick's book, I was caught by... Uh, some of the language in it that reminded me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life together. I commended it to, uh, I commended it to the guys that, we, that were part of our group on Wednesday night, and I commend it to you all again this morning. It's a small book, um, uh, and uh, I know Puma's read it, and Puma, I think, would thumbs up to this recommendation, this little book, Life Together. I suppose it was just, uh, I was just thinking about this, this line, this idea that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked around um, when it comes to how we speak of those who have been, who are maybe found themselves in a place of, uh, of transgressing or of, it's an old-fashioned word in it, or in a place of just failing, place of struggle. And this was a real challenge to me when I read it this week. Bonhoeffer says, we should speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. We should speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. And so it's important for us to remember here when Paul is speaking in these, here he is speaking to the church. He's not just speaking to us as individuals here. So this is for us to work out together as church. What is your response? What is your, what is your natural response? Think about this. Be really honest. You don't have to say it out loud. 
What is your response when you see someone in, in a place of struggle, in a place of failure, in a place of transgressing once again? Do you speak more to that brother about where they're going wrong, or that sister about where they're failing? Or do you speak more to Christ about them? I think it's important, I really do. I think it's important because I think it's, that is a, that's an important place to get to because it's there that we cease from constantly critiquing. It's there that we, we cease from constantly scrutinizing the other. Where we, constantly, where we cease from constantly judging, condemning, whatever other adjective you want to use there. See, the verse 2 of chapter 2 says, um, in which you used to live when you followed the way of the world. N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright's uh, version of this portion says, the, the road that you used to travel. And sometimes I think we forget that. I know I forget that. Maybe I'm just like spilling out some of my stuff here. But I, I'm challenged by this. When you, were, when you were on that road, we all used to travel. We were all on the same road. This was the road that you used to travel. And I think when we remember that, we then speak to Christ about a brother more than the other way around. See, I think this reveals our understanding of the church. I think it reveals our understanding of what it is to be brothers and sisters in the family of God. And there's this quote, another, this quote, sorry, Tamar, this quote says, again from Bonhoeffer, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for us. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to each of us. And again, I... This is where I want us to get to in our understanding of the church. Ultimately, our engagement, our, how we see one another, how we view one another, it's solely in what Christ has done in each one of us, what Christ has done for both of us. And Paul, in another letter, writes about how he is the worst of all sinners. I don't think he's self-deprecating just for the sake of it. I think for Paul it was really important that that was his mindset because he was maybe at that same place of understanding that you cannot truly serve another unless you regard your own sin as worse than theirs. And so all of this for me is to get me to a place where I'm fully grounded in the gospel story. I'm fully grounded. I'm fully conscious of what Christ has done for me and what Christ has done for you. I'm grounded in this remarkable story of grace. I'm grounded once again as a, as, as a sense the Lord beckoning me back and beckoning us back to first love. And David brought us there last Sunday and I have to say that like you, if you didn't listen to it and even if you were here, I Go back and make sure you, you catch what David was saying last Sunday morning. Incredibly deep, incredibly rich. And just that call, that beckoning back to first love. See the transition here. 
the transition of what Paul is reminding us of is so extreme. See, Jesus is not some addition to our lives. Sometimes there's certain presentations, evangelical presentations, that almost present Jesus as some addition that you just add on to your life. You've got your job, you've got your family, all you need is just Jesus to tie that bow or that cherry on the top. The transition is so much more extreme than that. He is not simply an addition to our lives. He completely redefines it. And so to go back to, to, to this letter, the re- resurrection. And so there's something in me that's getting excited about Easter because it feels like we're... These, uh, this language is reminding us that resurrection redefines uh, or it defines the life of Jesus. And so verse 1 of chapter 2, um, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. And verse 5, again, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Go back to verse 20 of chapter 1. Um, the power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And 2 verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So all of those verses to say, I think maybe we got them in the wrong order, but the resurrection defines the life of Jesus. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly place. And David brought us there a wee bit last week. But it's just once again to emphasize that the resurrection defines Jesus' life and actually the resurrection defines ours. Just like him, we, not we were, we, not just like Jesus, but we too were once, um, we were once dead and we've been made alive in Christ. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we are too raised with him and seated with him. That transition is so extreme. I still, I, I sat this morning around the dining room table and I'm just like, like, I still feel like I don't, like I still feel like this is so big and so extreme and so monumental that I still can't get my head around it. Because there couldn't be any more extreme transition from being dead and on a particular direction and verse 4. And if you can put that up, Tamara, and this is like, if you forget everything else, if, you, if I'm losing you this morning, just remember this. But God, the transition that was so extreme it turns in this moment but God but God we were on this road we were all on this road traveling in the same direction and I think that's important to remember I don't know if I've communicated that well enough but it's all it's important we've all that's the road that we were all on we need to remember that you need to remember that as you like you wrestle through your own stuff And you need to remember that as you see others wrestling through it as well. We were all on that road. But God, everything changes in this moment. Our community with one another consists solely upon this but God moment. 
And this applies to us. It does apply to us individually. Paul is speaking to us as a community. But it applies to us individually. It applies to us that we were once dead, but we've been made alive. And even when we were on this road, we were making decisions that, was, that, were, that, were, going, that were going to send us in a certain direction. Not for our own good. Certainly not for our own good, but there's a but God moment that changed everything. And it's, not, it's, it's even better than that. Who is rich in mercy. Because of the depth of his, of his riches, because of the depth of his love. You've been made alive. And so that applies to us and it also applies to others. And so in those moments where we struggle with, with pity or we struggle with regret or we struggle with complaint, whether it's about self or it's about others, I'm encouraging you to, 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 to like write it everywhere, write it across your your bathroom mirrors, write it in the steam when you come out of the shower on the window, wherever you need to do, but God, if you consider your, your thinking about yourself and your relationship with others, we were all on this traveling, this same road, all heading a certain direction, but God. And I think something happens when our, when our interactions, our community with one another consists solely solely in what Christ has done in each of us. I love this. I love the language. I love the poetic language of Eugene Peterson. Listen to what he says here about, about resurrection country. Resurrection country is no longer an extravagant landscape before which we stand in reverential awe. It is the land we live in, entering into the detailed intricacies of resurrection living. I find it beautiful. This is resurrection country. That's where we live now. If you've experienced this but God moment, you have been raised. We are raised together with Christ and we are seated with him. We live in resurrection country. And so it's no longer, uh, it's no longer something you sit back and watch the extravagant landscape off in the distance. That's not, that's not the case anymore. We don't live from that place anymore. We live in it. It is the land in which we live in. And we, ent- and we enter into all the details, the detailed intricacies of resurrection living. See, again, and that, again, this is not to make anybody feel bad or it's not to point the finger, but when you spectate, when you spectate, you can leave when you want. I'm glad I, I was me and Caleb. I brought Caleb down to with his friends to watch Ulster play last last Friday night, and uh, started to look around. It was like 75 minutes. I started to look around all the crowds of people, and remembering the cars that were outside, and it's like, boys, come on, let's leave now. So we beat, beat the traffic. They were having none of it, and that's good. That's good. We're sort of challenged by that idea. When you're a spectator, you can leave when you want. When you're a spectator, you, you can retreat when you're bored. 
when you're a spectator, you can like you can just you can just move on somewhere else that that'll suit your own preference. There's something about now living in resur- the resurrection country that doesn't give you that option, because resurrection country is now where you live. And if that's where you live and you've been raised up with him, everything's changed. The transition is so extreme here. And so I'm encouraging you as politely as possible, don't be a spectator. In fact, it shouldn't even be on the cards. Because then we'll just retreat when when we're not interested. We'll pull back when we're bored. We'll, I think we'll even, it'll even impact how we view others. We've been saved by sheer grace. And there's some stuff that we'll try and get through here. There's, we have been saved by sheer grace. Again, that's how N.T. Wright puts it in verse 5 of chapter 2. We've been saved by sheer grace. We've shown the incomparable riches of his grace in verse 7. Verse 8 again, saved by grace. And almost like deserves a whole other talk itself. It's grace or nothing. Like I, I, can't, I don't normally come up with titles, but that would be a good one, wouldn't it? It's grace or nothing. <laughs> I'm very tempted. Like there's times where you want to you wanna do... I'm not going to do it, even though David David said last week he wasn't going to do the Greek, and this, but he did it about four times. I'm not. Um, I, 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 but I was tempted. I was tempted to do, take the word grace. It's grace or nothing. Okay, how do we define this? Like where will it go? Will it go to the Greek? How smart will I appear here? Will I just go to the normal dictionary? And but like like how do you like how do you define? You can't explain it. You go looking. In fact, I almost think it's the last place you want to go to explain grace is the dictionary. Because it cannot be explained. It can only be experienced. And I, and I, and I know that there's all the definitions of grace. And people have done an incredible job of explaining it. But for me, I'm, I'm like, I almost throw that out as a challenge. Maybe around your dinner table today. Define grace. But don't define it by, by, by a really good explanation that you've heard somebody give. Define it by what you've experienced. What have you experienced of grace? Use your experience to define it. I think it was N.T. Wright said this. Contradicting myself now, aren't I? Because now I'm using N.T. Wright's definition of grace. But anyway... Forgive me. But he said, this is what he says. He says, Grace originates in an act of God that is absolutely without precedent. It's the generous, sacrificial, self-giving of Jesus that makes it possible for us to participate in resurrection maturity. It is not about what we do. It is what we participate in. Not good? It originates in an act of God. It's, it's this generous, um, sacrificial self-giving of Jesus. And because of that, we then can participate in resurrection maturity. It is not about what we do. It is about what we participate in. And there's just this transforming consequence of grace. 
I don't know why Neville was alluding to it this morning, um, just when he, when he was praying at the beginning, that there would be a lightness. I think that's the transforming consequence of grace. Because if with the, on one, one, one side of the spectrum, you've got your own effort, anxiously striving to do it yourself, to get the job done, to do whatever it takes in your own strength, anxiously striving to do that. Or the other end of the scale is that the burden is easy and the yoke is light. That's what Jesus promised in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. That's where you're going to find lightness. That's, that's probably a good definition, a good understanding of what grace looks like. We effortlessly, we effortlessly live in the presence of God where he is actively present. We're no longer living for self. We're no longer living by our own strength because the transforming consequence of grace is that we, we rest in him. We rest in the one who promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is where it gets, can get a wee bit tricky. Slightly challenging because oftentimes we can almost pit work and grace off against each other. I want to suggest to you this morning that grace does not displace work. Work is not something that is, that, that is sub-spiritual. And again, if we go back to, to a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 2 of Rick's book, much of our conversation uh, in our group um, revolved around this idea of how God anoints. And he doesn't just anoint the worship leader or the people at the front, which we can be so accustomed to thinking, but he anoints the builders. He anoints the, the teachers he anoints the chefs. He anoints the hairdressers and the surveyors and the, the planners and the musicians. He anoints the physios, the nurses, whatever Neville does. He anoints. <laughs> he anoints. And there's something in each of us. There's something in each of us that makes us come alive. We don't, we don't need to. There's no biblical grounding for us having to say that, that grace displaces. And sometimes that can be difficult. Maybe times if you don't feel fully alive in, the jo- in your job, in your workplace. Maybe it is, uh, you're hearing these verses, God raised us up. That's, that's incredible. You're like so excited about that this morning. God raised me up. I'm seated with him. And you're conscious then as you leave here that, oh man, I have to return tomorrow to the same job, the same people, the same conditions. Or school. You're hearing me this morning. You've raised up, guys. You're raised up to be seated with him. And you're like, oh, but does that mean I still have to go back to school tomorrow? I still have to wake up early to get back to school and 
getting the bus with the same people and experiencing the same conditions. And what changes? And this is easier said than practiced, I know, but what changes is that you are God's work. You are God's work. You are doing His work. There's something so stunning about the incarnation of Jesus that, that, we, uh, that we sometimes just go to and, uh, at Christmas time. But it is so foundational to, to Christian spirituality because all, all Christian spirituality is incarnational of, in Jesus, but actually also in us. And so, is, so I know that there's still a challenge, still a practical challenge of well, the job's still the same, the conditions are still the same. I don't know if I'm fully there yet, but I'm, but I'm telling you, you are his work. I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm telling you that all Christian spirituality is incarnational in Jesus, but also in us. I'll finish off this last, with this last thought. I find this image helpful um, for... Again, if you've forgotten, it's the water at the well. I can't remember who suggested this. It certainly wasn't me. But good works are to grace what a pail is to water. The pail is the container to get from the well to the table. And God's work is the content. And our work, our work after the manner of Jesus, in the likeness of Jesus, is the container. And so grace and and works are not to be pitted against each other. In the same way that the pale pulls the water from the well to bring to the table that is the same as the work of God or what we do the work is the content God's work is the content and our work is the container and so I finish with that image and and I almost just remind you of the, of the few places that I just wanted to try and communicate this morning. Reminding us of where we've been. And you might be further along the road than somebody else. But you need to remember you were on that same road too. And, and that needs to impact how you to look at your brother and sister. Needs to impact it because I'm longing that, that this place would be a community that would, um, with one another, would consist solely in what Christ has done in each of us. And we think about, the, about grace and we've thought about our works. And more than anything, I just am I'm hoping my prayer again is that there would be something in here that would spark conversation. Something in here that we could continue just to work out together as family longing to discover this mystery, longing to discover what it is to live 
to live fully as the church, as the body and bride of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for these, um, these words in this letter. God, it's, a, it's an old letter written to ancient people, but what riches and what depths it continues to speak and reveal to us. And Jesus, I pray more than anything else, we would just be, we would just be struck by sheer grace, saved by sheer grace. Thank you for this gift. I thank you for the gift of one another. God, we want to be participants together in in what it means to live in resurrection country. Father, would you show us what it is, what it means, what it feels like, what the experience of being raised up and seated with you. God, that would be so transformational in us. God, it would be so transformational in how we, how we live amongst each other, how we see one another, how we serve one another. God, wherever we find ourselves this week, God, we, I pray that we would... Um, we would live incarnationally. God, in the same way that Jesus came and dwelt among us, revealed to us the kindness, the greatness of our God, I pray that we would do the same. That wherever we find ourselves, we live among, we dwell among, in order to reveal the kindness and the greatness the wonder of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.